0: Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. So good to see you on a Wednesday night. Praise the Lord. It's a little chilly, but uh, that's all right. Um, boy, I'm excited what God's been doing. Amen. What a Sunday we had, right? Wow. I'm still just trying to get my head around what God has done. It re- truly exceeding abundantly above all I could ask or think. Really, really great. Wow. You know, um, we did a little bit of the math on uh, this last year's missions giving and you know that our our goal was 9800 a month and then you look at some of the months and they kind of dip down and so on and even october was like 8500 not 98 but when you average it all out it's over 9100 a month is what's come in isn't that encouraging yeah it is god is really good And I can hardly wait to see what God's going to do over the next 12 months. I'm really excited by it. Well, thank you again for coming. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear loving Father, thank you for allowing us this day to live for you. And it brings us one day closer to the coming of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And it will happen, just as he said it would. And the trumpet will sound and we'll be caught up together. Until that day, help us to be faithful. Faithful, Lord, in attendance and faithful in praying and reading our Bible, faithful in being a Christian witness, faithful in supporting missions, faithful in tithing, faithful in all of the things that you've called us to be. Lord, we pray you would bless tonight and grant to us your joy. Please help us in our Bible studies to prepare our hearts for the time of prayer and truly help us to be a praying church and uh, individuals within the church who put a premium on prayer. Help us to be those kind of Christians. Lord, please have thine own way tonight. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please be seated. You
1: can remain seated as we sing hymn number 299. Hymn number 299.
0: we got a letter from uh, the Misslands missionaries to Metro Manila. Dear Pastor and Mrs. White in Grace Baptist Church, we're blessed and encouraged to be a part of the mission conference, and we want to thank you for allowing us to be with you all. What a great honor and privilege it was to be able to share our burden and love for Metro Manila, and also to minister through the Word of God. It was a blessing to see what the Lord has done and is still doing here at Grace B.C., And we do pray that he'd continue to use you to be a shining gospel light here in Surrey and also the regions beyond. We so appreciate the wonderful accommodation, short but sweet time of fellowship, and also your kindness and generosity. Again, thank you for being a great blessing to our family for God's global glory. And he's got Jonathan, Annika, and Jason Mislin, missionaries to Metro Manila, Philippines. That's nice, isn't it, to get letters like that. Uh, from the missionaries who come. Well, let's open our Bibles tonight to our study in the book of Revelation. And we're starting chapter (coughs) 2. Chapter 2. Is this thing ready to go? Here we are. Revelation chapter 2. You know, there are things in the book of Revelation that no man on earth fully comprehends. I'll give you one of them, is the 666. I'll give you another one, the name of the Antichrist. I'll give you another one, the time and date. When the tribulation will begin. Those are just three of the many things that we just don't know. There are things we do know. Uh, There are symbols given and then they're explained. But there are some things in the book of Revelation that uh, we still say, well, it could be this and it could be that. But these tend to be more minor issues as far as we're concerned. After the Lord Jesus comes and takes away his church and we're gone away to heaven, we'll have more perfect understanding up there. But the saints on earth will get the book of Revelation and they'll use it as a roadmap for the next seven years. Those are the ones who will know exactly when the tribulation began. They'll know exactly when the rapture happened, right? Because they're looking behind them. When we look behind, that's when we can connect the dots. We can say, ah, look, this happened, and then that happened, and that's why this happened here. We connect the dots when we look behind. But a lot of this stuff hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward. And it's almost, to some degree, it's like a man in the 1800s looking forward to the 21st century, and he's trying to comprehend the Internet. Trying to get his head around cell phones, which are, the the actual telephone part of it is the minor part, right, of your cell phone. I mean, that thing is a a flashlight, it's a compass, Um, it's a camera, Um, it's a texting machine, it's an email, it's a, um, a navigational GPS, on and on the uses go. We call it a cell phone. It's the smaller use of the device. Like Christian bookstores. Christian books is actually the smaller part of what's in Christian bookstores today. But, you know, 150 years ago, someone trying to understand this stuff, they'd have no idea what an atomic bomb is. But looking back, we can connect the dots. And in the tribulation time, they'll be able to look back and connect certain dots but they'll s- still be looking forward. And I believe the book of Revelation will give them a bit of a, a road map uh, through those um, turbulent years ahead. It's a lot of fun, really, to study the Bible and to look into the book of Revelation. I'll tell you a little secret here. Not much of a secret, really, but when I was first starting to read the Bible back in 1974... I didn't understand really anything I'd read. It took me the better part of four months to finally understand how to be saved. And so then I ended up getting saved in early April, 75. But I remember reading some of the book of Revelation before I was saved. And I just was so confused by you know, the, the symbols in there and the, uh, the chapters and these people that would just fall down and worship God And this is before I'm saved. And that that scared me. And I thought, oh, wow, what's going on here? But after I was saved, of course, you get a built-in Bible teacher when you get saved, don't you? He's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was a great help and comfort and guide in clearing up a lot of those mysteries uh, for me, anyhow. Well, chapter 1 we have finished with now. And chapter 1... We've uh, actually covered quite a bit. I believe verse 19 is the key for the entire book. Write the things which thou hast seen the past, the things which are present, and the things which shall be hereafter. I think that's the key, but the verse doesn't stop there. It actually continues on to the next verse, including the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Period. And so... There is uh, uh, some of that included here as we continue on. The picture of the Lord Jesus that he, he chose to exhibit himself and show himself in chapter 1, a tenfold uh, image from verse 13 through to verse 16. It's uh, an amazing image portrayal of himself and it was so powerful it caused the Apostle John to fall at his feet as if he were dead. Um, I'm sure he was uh, trembling. I'm sure he didn't know what was happening. But um, in verse 17 you can see that he says, I fell at his feet as dead. He didn't die, but he fell at his feet as dead. And so then the Lord uh, laid his, uh, his right hand upon him and said, fear not. And so we're going to get into chapter 2 and we're going to begin um, reading other people's mail. There are seven letters in chapter 2 and 3 given to seven churches. And we're going to have the chance to look at those tonight and, and look and see how they apply to our lives So let's first begin with prayer, and then we'll get right in here. And I have a few slides to show you as well. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for allowing us here into your house tonight. We pray that you would please impress upon our hearts the truths of uh, chapter 2, at least the first seven verses, and this great church at Ephesus, and help us to learn a few historical things. That's fine. But the... The main meat of the message here, the application of the truth to our hearts. Help us with that and indeed prepare our hearts for a a short season of prayer together at your throne with you, Lord. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's see. What do we got? What do we got? Can you see that all right from where you are? Is it too small, too hard to see? How many need binoculars? All right, well, we've got the angel pulling the curtain back. Isn't it nice when the curtain gets pulled back? And um, here is the vision of the glorified Christ. So here he is standing here in the midst of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven candlesticks. And these seven angels or stars also, and they represent the pastors. So you've got... These candlesticks with names on them, this one is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And these names were the names of cities in Asia. Um, let's see if we've got... Uh, Here's what we're dealing with. Uh Chapter 2, verse 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And a lot of people wonder, well, what is that angel? And some people think that it's an actual, real angel, uh, like uh, Gabriel, um, that kind of angel. I believe that the angel here is the pastor. And uh, the reasons I believe that is that every letter is addressed to the angel of the church. You don't write physical letters to angels. They don't need that. But pastors do. Um, By speaking to the pastor also, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the entire church. He's speaking to the people of the church also because the pastor leads the church. So what was the message to each of these particular churches? What is the message for us today? What, if any, is the message for the tribulation Saints. Now it makes sense that the tribulation saints, and particularly the Jews who get saved in the tribulation, will say, Hey, look at this. This was our Savior. This was our Messiah, Christ, Jesus. What is it that He said to those churches? Is there any application? Is there any meaning here for us? And so we come to the the first church, the church Ephesus. Now the word Ephesus means desirable. That's the name of the city. And uh, its meaning is desirable. And we'll be looking at uh, the first seven verses. You can see here uh, Asia. And there is Ephesus right there. Just off the coast. We've studied this already a couple weeks ago. But is the Isle of Patmos. And that's where the Apostle John was when he... Met with Jesus here and wrote. Now the um, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a coastal city, and it was a very desirable place to live. Here is a um, aerial photo of the 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 land that uh, the city would have occupied, uh, modern day here, and it was a very desirable place. It was the capital of the chief province of. Asia, and it was on the east side of the Aegean Sea. Now, there was something like 250,000 people in this city, so it wasn't a little donkey stop. It, it had all of the modern luxuries that money could afford. Here are uh, some people here. It was taken on a, uh, a little pilgrimage trip and some of the ruins into the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, the city had a very large broad, paved way, all the way in there. And um, very typically, along, along the way in, people would set up graves. That's where they would bury Aunt Matilda and Uncle Zeke, uh, along the, the big Broadway into the city, because they thought, their thinking back then, was that this would be good. They would like that. They'd like the attention. People would often go out and put uh, little offerings of food and incense and things like that on the graves for, the, for their departed loved ones to keep them happy. That was a very common occurrence. They would do that. You know, there are people that still believe this, that they need to pacify the departed souls, because if they didn't, then at night they'd come into town and make you know mess them up, hide under the bed or in the closet, the dark closet, and... Scare them, that sort of thing. Boy, you know, hiding under the bed, that's one of the worst things for a lot of kids. Something's something's under the bed, I know it. Something's under the bed. Or down in the, in the dark cellar, if they happen to have one. But it had all of the modern luxuries that money could afford. It was a very wealthy city. And it had um, one of these amphitheaters. And to have an amphitheater in your city was a sign of wealth. And of course, this is where... Not the gladiator games would be performed as much, but plays and operas and comedies and things like that and and singers and actors. And they would just fill up all this area here and the uh, performers would be down here. You don't get something like that in a donkey stop little city. It had to be the big wealthy cities that had something like that. And uh, let's see, the goddess Diana was uh, big money, big news and big money for the, uh, uh, the people there. Diana was considered a fertility goddess, and it was very normal, normal, common, common practice for people to own one or more of these little statues and put them in their homes. Um, they had a temple... I think this is the ruins of the what they think is the Temple of Diana. And this attracted thousands of visitors every year. Now, the church of Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul on his second ministry, missionary journey. He stayed there approximately three years. And he had a run-in with the makers of the Diana statues. Now, again, we just go back, click, there we are. They, this was huge business. It brought in lots of money. And uh, the Apostle Paul was, was preaching the, uh, the real gospel and a real Messiah. And people were getting saved and they were turning away from this. Now if just two or three people, four or five people in a town of 250,000 or something turned away, no one would care. The manufacturers would go on manufacturing the idols, business as usual. But the preaching of the apostle was so powerful that more and more and more people were destroying these and they weren't buying any new ones. And it brought into jeopardy their um, their craft and their trade. Now, <clears throat> I'll give you a modern day example. Maybe it's a poor example, but it's at least worthy to hear me out. <laughs> Supposing that somehow... Um, some kind of movement was started that um, uh, said that we shouldn't be part of organized sports. Organized professional sports. Now, you know how much this whole greater Vancouver area is given over to that. Uh, Hockey and basketball and so on. And uh, supposing a movement began that started turning people away from organized sports. Let's say this. And we're just making this up. This isn't true. We're just making it up. But let's say that a movement began that cast doubt upon the players and the owners of all of the professional sports teams saying that they were corrupt. They were in league with organized crime. Some of them were terrorists. A lot of them were pedophiles. And a lot of them had shady backgrounds. And they took their money and they did some pretty evil things. Okay, And all of a sudden now, the whole professional sports movement you know, is in jeopardy of bankruptcy. Don't you think that would really cause an outcry? Boy, people some people would just be livid. They'd be ready to kill. And this is the scenario the Apostle Paul found himself in as he was in Ephesus and he was preaching against these pagan gods, gods and goddesses. And people were waking up saying, yeah, they're just made of stone. They got eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear. What are we doing praying to statues? That's no good. Oh, we're going to stop doing this. And so much so that it caused quite a stir in there. And um, finally, uh, the apostle had to leave town. But the church at Ephesus got well started. You know, uh, back in the 1920s, Things were a bit different than they are today. And there was a man on the scene named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was a firebrand of a preacher. He used to be a ball player with the Chicago White Sox. He used to play with the team way back when their first name was the Chicago White Stockings. That was the original name of the team. And Billy Sunday used to be a ball player, and they, they would get drunk and have all kinds of immorality back then as well as today. And so Billy Sunday got saved. And after a few years, he felt God's call into full-time ministry. And he was a fireball. This guy, he would preach. And uh, it was amazingly very unusual, the power of God that was on his life. And he would go into a town, he'd preach against booze, and people would get right with God. People would get saved. No one was going to the saloons. The saloons closed up, went out of business. And he'd move on to another town, do the same thing. Town after town after town went dry because of the preaching of this great man. It's said that Chicago was the only town that didn't go dry because of Billy Sunday's preaching. But so many towns went dry. People got right with God tells you a little bit maybe about Chicago at that time. Anyhow, Christ describes himself. We're in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he's holding the pastors in his right hand. If you look at verses, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I turned and to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Here's the apostle John, sort of seeing this in a vision, verse thirteen. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks one like unto the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jesus, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And if you look, please, at verse sixteen, and he, uh had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So here he is again, again with the uh, seven stars in his right hand. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand and the, the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And as I told you earlier, I believe that's a reference to the pastor's. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. You know, there's a a school of thought where people don't really appreciate the localness of a church. They talk about the church as something universal. The church universal all around the world. That's not the Bible concept of the church. The church is always local. It has to be because um, it has... uh, uh, pastors, it has deacons, it has membership, it has members, it has activities, it has prayer meetings, it has baptisms, it has communion, it has soul winning. These are all activities that help make up what a local church is. This idea of a universal church has no pastor, has no deacons, has no meetings, you know, doesn't get together for communion or baptism. None of the things that a local church is supposed to do. Um, very much the same way we look at a family. And a family typically, we typically think of a family as a mom and a dad and the children, and the activities of a family are to have meals together, are for the parents to train the children. Um, at, at certain times, maybe parents need to discipline the children. They clothe the children. They uh, raise the children. Uh, they, they have a place where they meet they sleep. We call it a home. Then we talk about the family of mankind. Well, that's only just the term, isn't it? Because all of the world doesn't live in one, one house. All of the world doesn't have a mom and a dad. You see the analogy? We can say the family of man, but it's not really a family. It's just a word. We can say, well, the, the, the church universal, but again, it, it, it's not right. The church is local, like a family is local. That's what the, the church is. And this actually proves it because he talks about the seven churches. These, it's not a universal church. These are seven local churches. And so Christ speaks of this church at Ephesus. This was a real church with pastors and deacons and lots of people. And they had been around for a number of years now at this point. Please look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. John wrote that Jesus said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted and so there's many good things here this church was known for. If you were to count them up, you'd count about ten different things, good things that the Lord had to say. Number one is the works. Number two, in verse two, is the labor. And, and so on. Um, I suppose if you included verse six, because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, we might say that's eleven. Eleven good things. The works... Um, would obviously involve uh, soul winning, witnessing, supporting of, of uh, missionaries. The labor suggests more intensive work, perhaps working individually with people, maybe working hard to bring them to Christ. Uh, the patience uh, is suffering persecution and waiting long and praying for people to get right for, with God. He says, and canst not bear the evil. This would be people who work against God and uh, has tried the so-called apostles. Now that would have been a difficult task back in the first century, but they did it and has found them liars. I want to remind you that there are still liars today. In Proverbs 30, verse 6, it says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. The same John who wrote Revelation wrote, a few pages earlier, the book of First John. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he said, He that saith, I know him, meaning I know God, and keepeth not his commandments. So if for a man to say, well, I know God, God and me, we're just like two peas in a pod, and yet that man does not obey God. He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In that same First John chapter 4, and verse 20, he wrote, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother... He's a liar. And so for a man to say, me and God, yeah, we're just like this. Oh, keep that man out of my sight. I'll kill him if, if he comes near me. This man is a liar. He, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? The description of the good works goes on in verse 3. And has borne. Probably they put up with the ridicule from some of the false prophets. Now look, he mentions patience and labor a second time. So that suggests that there was a lot of patience going on, a lot of labor going on in this particular church. And he finishes and says, and hast not fainted. They haven't quit. They haven't given up. They haven't um, um, thrown in the towel. And then we'll look at verse 6. I suppose we may as well Uh, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the uh, deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, This was a religious doctrine that began to flourish in the first century A.D., the, the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it tolerated compromise with pagan cults. It allowed participation in their banquets. It allowed participation in fornication. Now it goes it goes by the the name Nicolaitians, which is plural. It means followers of Nicholas. We don't have the time, but if we turn back to um, Acts chapter six, we'd find that Nicholas was one of the very first deacons at the church in Jerusalem, and um, it seems that he taught. People that the physical body must be kept in control by abuse. By abuse. Now, this teaching has uh, followed through um, with the, uh, uh, the Catholic Church where they'll, they'll take something. I thought I had a, a whip here with which to beat myself. I guess I don't have one. Good thing. And they would beat themselves. Um, Brother Mislin the missionary to the Philippines, to Manila, brought in one of these, these things. And um, people would beat themselves like that. Martin Luther was raised Catholic. He became a Catholic monk. And he was so burdened about his own sin that this is what they would do. Self-flagellation is what they called it. And he would beat himself with this whip. And this was common practice amongst the monks in uh, Martin Luther's day. And he was in the monastery, living in the monastery, and there were some times in the morning at breakfast, he had beaten himself so much, he wasn't able to come down to breakfast. Isn't that sad? And so, Nicholas seemed to be under the idea that the body must be kept in control. Now, there is an element of truth to that. Paul talked about keeping my body under and bringing it into subjection. But he didn't mean beating it like that with a whip. He didn't mean that. And Nicholas, it seems, seems to have taught that. But his followers, the followers of Nicholas, changed his teaching to mean abuse the body with indulgence. And this is what opened the door for them to get involved with pagan idolatry, fornication, and so on. Now in John's day, the Roman emperor's name was Domitian. He reigned from 81 to 96 AD, and then he was murdered. He was a notorious fornicator and a pagan idolater. He started a cult, the imperial cult of Domitian, and he pressured people to show their loyalty to to himself by attending the sacred pagan banquets. And so he began to heavily persecute Jews and Christians who wanted nothing to do with his uh, uh, horrible pagan banquets. Anyhow, John was one who got persecuted, and that's how John came to get boiled in oil. That's what they did to him. They thought it would kill him, but it didn't. And then he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. The followers of Nicholas, not wanting to be persecuted for their belief in in Christ, what they did was they compromised their standards so as to please the emperor Domitian and to escape persecution. And so they said fornication was okay and feasting at the pagan banquets was okay Now the church at Ephesus recognized uh, the Nicolaitans as compromising to save their own skin. That's what they did. They compromised to save their own skin. Um, The the church at Ephesus, they hated this doctrine and they'd have nothing to do with it. And according to verse 6, Jesus also hated it as well. Now you think of what can happen to a Christian at work and often the work situation where a, a lot, maybe most Christians work, is um, is not a godly place. Maybe it's the office. Maybe it's uh, the factory. But maybe there's a lot of ungodly people at work there. And maybe around the lunch table there's the Christian and there's all these other unsaved, ungodly people at the lunch table. And one of these ungodly men tells a, a rude, crude, Horrible joke, maybe even taking the name of the Lord in vain. And everyone around the table laughs at the joke, and there's the Christian. Now, what do I do? What do I do? If the Christian says, Well, I don't want to be labeled Holy Joe, I don't want them to think bad of me, so I'll just laugh along with the joke. That's compromise. And that would be on the same playing field as the Nicolaitans. In principle, it's the same. It's compromising your standards, laughing along with the filthy jokes of the world just so that they don't call you Holy Joel and ridicule you. Sad, but it happens, right? It happens. And at some point, as a Christian, you'll be tempted. You'll be tempted to compromise your standards. This sometimes happens in restaurants too. We know that we're supposed to uh, give God thanks for our food, for our meals. And it's very common in Christian homes, they bow their head and they pray. But what happens when they get to a restaurant with all these people in the restaurant? Or even worse, to make it worse, you go to a restaurant with a couple of your unsaved friends from work and they all order their food and they put your food down in front of you. And your friends just start wolfing down the food. And you're just, in, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And they're looking at you and they're going, why why aren't you eating? <laughs> and you're thinking, because I want to pray. But then what do I do? Oh, you know, drop the napkin, pray on your way down. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> and then start digging in. It's compromise, isn't it? Compromise. It's uh, something that faces uh, a lot of us Christians, and I've faced it too. Now, um, let's see, where are we at in the slideshow? Here we are. In verse 4, Christ now gives a warning about something. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I have somewhat against thee. Nevertheless means that with all these wonderful ten things I've said about you, Those are all good, but here's something that's not less than any of that. And he said, I have somewhat against thee. He says, because thou hast left thy first love. And even though they got all this works going on, these 10 great things, 11 if you count verse 6, all these great things, there's something on the other side of the the scales, right? The balance, the scales, it's like a teeter-totter or something. He says there's something I have and it doesn't weigh less than all these other things. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Labor galore, but what happened is they moved away from loving Jesus. Thou hast left thy first love. You know, it's easy to get consumed. For a Christian, uh, as the months go on, the years go on, they've been saved now for a period of time, it gets easy to get involved with all of the things that Christians do, and without realizing it, to leave off the love for Jesus. In fact, when we leave our first love and get busy in Christian service, it really won't be long before we get tempted to compromise and not pray for our meals at restaurants and just to kind of chuckle along with some of the dirty jokes at work. The compromise... To save us from being ridiculed. The further we get from our love for Jesus. Verse 5 is essentially repent or face the consequence. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And repent and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly. And will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent. God doesn't send a consequence the moment we sin, or at least doesn't always, sometimes there's a warning and He gives us time to, to repent. Now, this church at Ephesus, they left their first love. When they first got saved, boy, they were in love with Jesus. They had left the pagan uh, idols and the worship of Diana, turned their back on all that ridiculous stuff. And they turned to the one true living God. And they loved the Lord Jesus. Now what does it mean to truly love someone? When you really love someone, it means that you want to be with that person. Can you think back to a time when you first met and say f- fell in love with that special person? And wherever he or she was, that's where you wanted to be. You want to be with that person. You want to think about that person. In fact, you have trouble not thinking about that person. You could be working in the office in a cubicle at a computer. and You may be doing your data entry, but you're thinking about your loved one. You want to do things for that person. These are all signs. They're evidence of love. And if, if you've, Loved someone for any period of time, you know there's a temptation to pull away, to fall away, to leave, to leave that first love. Jesus describes himself here as loving the pastors, and that's why he's holding them in his hand. They're the stars, he's holding them in his hand. And he's walking in the midst of the churches. That's good to know. It's good to know the Lord Jesus is here. In fact, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst. And it's good to know that the Lord Jesus is here. And so here he is holding the pastors in his hand, walking in the midst of the churches, but it's almost as if no one's walking with him. It's almost as if he's walking alone. Everyone here at Ephesus is busy doing good things, mind you. But who will spend time with Jesus? That is the message for us here from the letter to the church at Ephesus. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 10, the Lord Jesus went and visited in the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary? Do you remember this? And uh, as, as he was relaxing, I guess, in the living room, I suppose, there was Lazarus and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. And where was Martha? Do you remember? She was in the kitchen. Right. And uh, she wasn't too happy, was she? Because she was uh, trying to get everything all done by herself. She was working hard thinking, where's that sister of mine? She ought to be in here helping me. And maybe Martha was clanging some of the pots and pans to try and send a signal, a message through to her sister. But her sister wasn't getting the message. And that just made Martha even more angry. And finally she said to Jesus, will you please talk to my sister? Here I am serving alone and... And here she is sitting at your feet. Would you please tell her to get in here and help? And you remember the Lord's response, his reply to Martha. He said, Martha, Martha, and you're troubled about many things. Mary hath chosen the better part. And it'll, it won't be taken away from her. I won't tell her to get up and to go in the kitchen and help you. This is the better part. There's a time and a place we need to spend time with Jesus. The best time is as the day begins. When you wake up, that's the best time to get alone and spend time with the Lord. You get busy with all these other things, you'll find you won't spend time with the Lord. You make the time to spend that time with the Lord first thing in the morning. And the rest of the day, you just walk with God. You walk with the Lord. It's a mistake that us Christians make too many times. But the message here is very clear for us. Now turn back a few pages, would you please? To 2 Timothy chapter 3. Go back a few pages. If you get to Genesis, you went too far. (laughs) 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Alright? And look at verse 1. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Hmm. Now look at verse 4. This is a part of a description of of the people in the last days. I think they're on us now, by the way. Verse 4. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures... More than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. You say, how would we know? How would we know if people are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God? It's very simple. How many hours a week does that person spend with their pleasures, their recreations, their hobbies, their sports? And how many hours a week does that person spend with the Lord? It's very easy to tell. Young man says to, to his bride, he says, honey, dear, I love you. He said, and that, now goodbye. And he takes off and she says, where are you going? Well, I'm off to do my thing. And um, I'll be back one of these fine days. And so two years later, sure enough, he shows up again. And meanwhile, her heart's broken a thousand times. Oh, you're finally home. Yes, I am. And he gives her a kiss on the cheek. He says, well, that should keep you for a while. Goodbye, I'm off again. And off he goes for another three years. Well, you'd say, ah, she ought to dump the guy. Get someone who really loves her. And you're probably right. Doesn't sound much like love to me. To run in and pay lip service to Jesus... And then to spend the next six days you know, out on the golf course or at the uh, uh, sports arena or something like that, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You'll know if you're a lover of God by how much time you spend alone with God. And so, back in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus wrote a very important letter to a very good church. And the message to that particular church is very simple get back to loving Jesus with all your heart because you've drifted. Now, Ephesus seems to also reflect, and we're doing a little bit of speculation now at this point. We can't say this 100%, but we're just kind of speculating. We look at those seven churches, and if you're a student of history, you can kind of see a similarity between those churches and certain major segments of history during the last 2,000 years. Whether it was meant to be this or not, I can't say, but it sure is uncanny. The church at Ephesus started great, but by the time you get to the end of the first century... The early believers have died out, they've gone to heaven. The apostles have all died out, they've gone to heaven. The great prayer warriors have died out and they've gone to heaven. The second and sometimes third generation of Christians have taken over the churches. Sometimes we look at churches today and we say, wow, look at all of the rock music coming out of there and the worldliness in that church. Well, they didn't start that way. They started years and years and years, maybe decades ago. They started with Bible study and with preaching and with prayer and with soul winning and supporting of missions and believing in biblical standards. And then that first crowd of Christians who began the church and pioneered the work, they died off and went to heaven. The next generation came along and they said well, we got to get with the times a little bit here. And so we're going to let our hair down a little bit. You know, not much. We don't want to be like the world, but we just need to loosen up a little bit. And so they did. And they allowed a few things into the church. But then that generation died off. And then the next generation took over the church. And now this third generation is saying, wow, we are really out of touch with the world. With, yeah, with the world. We got to be like the world in order to reach the world and so they dress like the world, they act like the world, they have the same music as the world, the same uh, mannerisms, they go to the parties of the world, the church has become worldly. So it didn't start that way, but it ends up that way. And here the church of Ephesus almost seems like what we might call the apostolic period of the church history from about A.D. 30 to, the, to A.D. 100. And the apostles and the first believers loved the Lord Jesus with all their hearts. But as these people started dying off, the next generation started taking over and moving in and moving the church a little bit. And I think that this is, the, um, this is essentially the message. This is what we have to, to hear. Now, I want you to see these words um, in verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now here's some good advice for you and me. Number one, it doesn't say he that hath ears. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say uh, ears, the idea being plural, everyone. It's he, singular, that hath an ear. So it's to the individual. You'll see this same message at the end of each of the seven letters. What God is telling us, is to listen to the letters to each of the seven churches. There's a message for every Christian wrapped up in every one of these seven churches. There's seven letters. We're going to be studying them over the weeks. This is the first letter tonight. Each of these letters has an important message for every Christian man and woman. And so it's not like this is the only message you need. The book of Revelation was written by John and it was sent to all seven churches. Each church would have no doubt have made a copy of it and then passed it on to the next church. They would have read it all, made a copy of it, very careful copy, passed it on to the next church. Each church was to benefit from all seven letters. Every Christian is to benefit from all seven letters. And so... We have to conclude the matter here tonight. The pastor and the people of the church at Ephesus needed to get their eyes back on Jesus. It was really for their own protection. I ask you tonight, is your eyes on Jesus? Is your heart infatuated with love for Him? Have you been tempted to compromise on the truth? You might ask, well, how do we know if we've left our first love? How can I know if I've drifted and I've left my first love? Number one, when my delight in the Lord is no longer as great as my delight in something else or someone else, then I've left my first love. Number two, when my soul does not long for rich times of fellowship in God's Word and in prayer, I've left my first love. Number three, when my thoughts during leisure do not reflect upon the Lord, I've left my first love. Number four, when I claim to be only human and easily give into those things that I know displease my Lord, I'll know I have left my first love. Number five, when I do not willingly and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others, I've left my first love. Number six, when I cease to treat Every Christian brother as I would the Lord, I have left my first love. Number seven, when I view the commands of Christ as restrictions to my happiness rather than expressions of his love, I have left my first love. Number eight, when I inwardly strive for the acclaim of this world rather than the approval of my Lord, I have left my first love. Number nine, when I fail to make Christ or his words known because I, refer, I fear rejection, I have left my first love. Number ten, when I refuse to give up an activity which I know is offending a weaker brother, then I have left my first love. Number eleven, when I become complacent to sinful conditions around me, I have left my first love. Number twelve, When I am unable to forgive another person for offending me, I have left my first love. Samuel Rutherford was a great preacher in the 1600s. And he once wrote a letter to Jesus. And in his letter he wrote these words, O my Lord, if there were a broad hell betwixt me and thee, I would... He said, I, if I could not get to thee except by wading through the hell, I would not think twice, but I would plunge through it all if I might embrace thee and call thee mine. End of quote. Pretty powerful, isn't it? How much do you love the Lord every day? Have you left your first love? Let's pray together. Close our eyes and pray.